0: Welcome to Changeboard's Future Talent Podcast, our series of exclusive interviews with senior business leaders and thinkers to uncover their perspectives on the changing world of work. I'm Jim carrick Burtwell, co-founder and CEO of Changeboard. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a comment or rating on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm joined by Jonas Prizing, CEO and chairman of Manpower Group. Jonas leads all aspects of Manpower Group's $20 billion business in 80 countries and territories worldwide. He's worked for Manpower Group since 1999, leading functions across Europe, Asia and North America, and is fluent in five languages. A recognised expert on the labour market and the world of work, Jonas regularly speaks at conferences and summits globally, including the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos. This year, he hosted a discussion on the digital skills imperative and rethinking leadership in the digital age. In this podcast, I ask Jonas for his perspectives on the ways artificial intelligence is changing industry, Manpower Group's research into what Jonas calls next-gen work, and how different regions view the value of vocational training and apprenticeships. Jonas, you're obviously um, personally, but also Manpower Group uh, have been really heavily involved in the World Economic Forum annual meetings in, in Davos. Um, is part of the reason behind that because you're, you know, it's a global gathering. So is an outcome of that that, that there are some sharings of insights and learnings from organizations from different parts of the world?
1: Is our interest and participation in the World Economic Forum, which has which has been you know going on for more than a d- decade at the highest levels, is really driven by a desire to you know share our insights of what we see happening in the world of work as far as structural changes, uh, because we believe we leave at a time and um, you know we 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 we, we this concept in. In Davos in 2011, which we called the human age, where access to talent, human capital, will be the distinguishing and competitive advantage of nations and organizations alike. And the reason we believe that to be true is that labor markets are not only affected by cyclical changes, economies going up and down, but increasingly by structural trends. And those structural trends are, of course, by now well understood. They relate to technology globalization, the changing demographics, the way organizations are preparing for a different environment as far as their organization models are concerned, and lastly, but importantly, also the choices that individuals make with, with regards to their work life and their preferences of how to engage with the workforce. And that's really been the, the, the reason why we've been so heavily engaged in this in this forum and in those discussions uh, because we think it's going to be the defining topic and challenge for our societies for the coming 20 years.
0: What were the personal key takeaways from from this year's event for you?
1: Well, I've been going to the World Economic Forum for many years and I have to say, this year there were two themes that, that, uh, that struck me. The first one was the overall broad-based optimism from a business leader perspective that things are looking up, we have a synchronized global recovery or better growth prospects, um, unemployment is coming down, their businesses are going better, so I would say the sentiment was by and large very positive, uh, which was a refreshing change from a number of years ago where it's been more of a doomsday scenario with a number of concerns, geopolitical or political or populism related. Um, the other part that I found very interesting, because that has been an increasing theme, increasingly important and loud theme in all of this, has been the impact of technology in a number of areas. Uh, one of them, of course, being you know, new instruments, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, you know, disruption that are occurring to business models and things like that. But then of particular interest to us at Mampar Group, has been the debate around the impact of automation and technology in labor markets. And that was really, those were really the three main themes optimism, the disruptive impact of technology, as always, I should say, and lastly, an increasing dis- level of discussion as it relates to concerns, optimisms, opportunities in and surrounding the impact of technology in labor markets and in the workforce.
0: Thanks, Jonas, and 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 those strike me as the, the the key themes that are the sort of the backdrop to, um, you know, w- what you've termed a kind of skills revolution that you've been focusing on at Manpower Group. Um, I mean, just drilling down into that, these kind of these these structural changes, um, uh, how have they been affecting organisations and employees? Um, particularly from a skills perspective, I and mean, if we take, you know, technology, AI, automation, what impact is is that having from your perspective?
1: Well, it's it's a very interesting uh, discussion, and I think interesting from a number of different uh, pers- perspectives. Uh, so the, the 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 effects of the structural changes that are occurring. Uh, Globalization meaning you have access to skills pools and labor pools that have, you know, different skill sets. Um, Technology really benefiting those individuals with um, the right skill sets and, you know, making it more difficult with people who have insufficient or no skill sets to take advantage of technology. Individual choices, you know, this notion of consumerism and making choices that fit your lifestyle and your preferences in this combination of economy of scale but still personalization and how that's playing out in the, in the labor market. And then last but not least also how organizations are really in a disruptive environment building for agile and faster-moving uh, organizational models that are able to adapt because they may not be able to predict what the future will, 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 um, will portray, but they know they need to be able to react at speed so they can take the curve when it comes. As it relates then to how this is all shaping up, it essentially plays out like this. The world of work is bifurcated between those that have the skills that can take advantage of these trends and those that do not have the required skills or insufficient skills or no skills. And that polarization of the labor markets, which you can see you know, re- replayed in unemployment numbers all over the world in developed and in emerging markets, you can also see it play out in terms of populism all over the world in various countries. So it is a part of the population that is benefiting from some of these changes, and there's a part of the population that is either directly not benefiting today, as evidenced by high youth and/or lower unskilled um, uh, unemployment rates. Um, or, or high unemployment rates for those with low skills or no skills, uh, but also a part of the population that is fearing the future and saying, look, this is I'm okay now, but I'm not going to be okay in the future. And I think eventually we have seen this play out um, all around the world in terms of the emergence of populism, where very quickly between 20 to 25% of the population in almost any developed country has migrated to the side of Look, I think this is, this, is, this is not a good evolution for me, and, and we make our voices heard. And that is an extremely important debate, and that is exactly why we want to position uh, our view and make sure we provide the insight on what we see happening in the labor market as it relates to skills. Because this bifurcation, we believe, is accelerating. It is not stagnating, and it's not converging at this point. In any industrial revolution, if you want to use the World Economic Forum language of the Fourth Industrial Revolution, all prior revolutions, the Industrial Revolution, for instance, has been accompanied by an education revolution as well. So if you think about when we moved from an agrarian society to an industrial society, mandatory schooling was implemented in all developed countries you know in 1910 1920 1930 earlier in some later in others as a way of coping and providing a more skilled workforce to be able to take advantage of that phase of the revolution the industrial revolution and we believe exactly the same kind of revolution will have to take place as it relates to bridging the skills between those that have the requisite skills and those that do not, so that we have a society that is able to gain and grow uh, in prosperity with all of the changes that we know are happening and will inevitably occur as we see the uh, Fourth Industrial Revolution play out.
0: That's, I, I really like, Jonas, the, the kind of, the, 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 the really explicit focus on education, as the kind of abiding uh, theme that keeps recurring um, throughout history, as you've just put it. Um, I mean, is that what you see when you you talk about? um, uh, I've been reading uh, the the language you mentioned learnability. Um, Is that one of these kind of key parts of the the education cycle that, that we need to look at? What do you mean by learnability?
1: Well, and, and maybe, Jim, before we go to that, just as a backdrop on the very interesting debate that we we, we we are daily engaged in, and you can open any newspaper anywhere in the world, and the concern about AI, you know, making jobs redundant and replacing jobs. You know, what I find and what we find so interesting and, and concerning, which is why we think this debate around the skills revolution is so important, is that we focus way too much time on the actual or potential impact of the disruptive elements of technology as in job eliminations and way too little time on the actual impact that we need to affect which is the skills revolution because to this time to this very date all of the data would tell you that this is going to play out the way it's played out in the past. In the beginning of the of the of the twentieth century, forty percent of the population, or at the end of the nineteenth century, maybe forty percent of the population, in most in, in, in a developed country like the U.S. was involved in agriculture. Today, the population is, the workforce, two percent of the workforce is in, in um, in involved in agriculture, and more products, more more more. More, more vegetables and fruits are being produced than ever before in our history. So we have gone through many, many evolutions like this in industry, in the agricultural um, economies, all over the world. And the end result has always been the same, that after a period of transition and disruption, requiring a skills revolution, new jobs have been created and more prosperity and wealth has been created. Now, the counterargument to that is the speed of change, this time driven by globalization and how quickly uh, technologies can leapfrog and and replace uh, human activities. And that is the reason why we think learnability is such an important aspect of the skills revolution. Because your ability to acquire and continuously acquiring new skills at faster cycles then what has been the case in the past will be your ability f- to guarantee employment security for the long term and and that is one of the defining features we believe of the skills revolution that learnability will be the capability we need our education systems to provide uh, so that individuals are ready to continue to learn all along this undoubtedly accelerating change environment that we are faced with today, but that we are always going to be faced with also going forward.
0: And Jonas, um, what's your perspective on how uh, leaders are uh, aware of that being the nature of the challenge? Have they understood that they have a responsibility to create kind of... uh, environments where learning is continuous um, for all generations and, and are you seeing that being kind of implemented in organizations at a strategic structural level?
1: I would say many organizations, Jim, realize it is important. I think the difference is that a minority at this point realize it is a strategic imperative, Most organizations that we work with think of it as an operational imperative and the operational imperative is driven by an improving economy, harder to find people with the right skills, individuals with the skills being increasingly mobile and willing to change employers because their future employment, you know, they they are trying to acquire and build a skills portfolio which they hope to get from one employer and if they don't get it from one employer they'll move to the next employer. Um, So building attraction and retention strategies around that is why a number of companies are are doing it. Of course, demographics and aging workforce in many developed countries means many organizations are aware of an impending retirement wave uh, that they need to prepare for. So I would say many organizations are more actively involved in this. As yet, though, I would say not all of them or most of them are not thinking about this at a strategic level and I think that's the evolution that we will continue to see evolve because from a business strategy perspective your most critical resource is going to be your access to human capital and it is that human capital augmented by technology and great processes that you are going to be able to execute your business strategy and and I don't think the awareness is fully there yet on a broad-based scale in many organizations. But I think if you look at the surveys of chief executive officers and what their top-of-mind concerns are today, I think within the first one or two priorities is access to human capital to execute on their business ambitions.
0: And and how do you see um, the the if you like the uh, the reshaping? of human capital um, within organizations, how do you see it shifting from being an, an operational concern to a strategic concern? What, what, need, what do leaders need to be thinking about to make that shift?
1: Well, the, 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 the shift needs to occur at a very fundamental level as you think about how these organizations are going to be successful in the future they will have great difficulty predicting what's going to be happening next, but that means they need to build organizational models models that are agile and flexible, um, where you have a different composition of the workforce, leveraging various tools of flexibility and globalization for that matter to create organizational capability in ways that you did not think about before in a traditional way. The leadership aspect, of course, and how you think about driving an organization is also going to change fundamentally. The realization that middle management's role is evolving from being a, uh, shall we say, a container of acquired experience over decades of working life to a coordinator of resources where access to knowledge is ubiquitous, which is a very different managerial role um, I think the business necessities are increasingly becoming so urgent and clear that it is moving up the strategic agenda now that is of course then also where the profession the human resource profession needs to be in lockstep and be able to make that move to take these topics and assist the organization in making this a strategic priority as opposed to an operational priority.
0: And and I, I'm glad you picked that up because I was actually just gonna pick up on that, Jonas. Uh, in terms of what um, the skills of HR leaders, the leaders of HR functions need to be developing to, to, to be, as you put it, in lockstep with um, the new strategic way of thinking and operating for organizations, um, are there any examples that you could share of um, HR functions that, that are having, you know, are seeing these kind of transformations of the way they think about um, the skills that they're developing within their organizations?
1: Well, I think you, you can see a number of organizations taking very radical steps, frankly, as it relates to, you know, growing a talent pipeline internally uh, making their expectations very explicit to the employee base. You know, you don't join this organization to um, uh, get a job for life. However, our commitment to you as you join this organization is to develop your skills. We hope to use your skills for a long time, but if we don't, you know that our explicit agreement with you is that we will have enhanced your skill set so you are more marketable in any circumstance that you may wish to find yourself um, as you look into the future. So very explicit uh, employee engagement and attraction strategies. I would also say that the organizations, and you have seen examples of that, you have seen a number of organizations, you know, recruit leaders into C-suite HR roles that come from the business and that have a business background first, understand the operational impact of human capital in their business, but, but that is their primary lens with which they then take the other traditional lenses within HR to drive a more business-centric uh, HR strategy than maybe what has been the focus in the past. So I think the you know the evolution of HR functions and how HR leaders think about to how to best align with the business strategies is extremely important. And I, of course, believe that the most important aspect of that is a profound understanding of how the organization creates value through its human capital at a very, ven- very, very fundamental level. So, what is the value creation model? And what role does human capital play in that? And have that very profoundly understood and explicitly um, determined, so that they can be effective leaders within those organizations.
0: And of course, that creates the opportunity for um, HR to to be taking an increasingly strategic role, alongside you know, and indeed, right at the heart of the executive team, creating you know and shaping these um, workforces of, of the future um, which is which is a you know one of the the fanta- I think it was one of the reasons that the HR community are so genuinely engaged by um, yes the disruptions and they cause big challenges but from that disruption there there is almost a sort of a uh, a new settlement of uh, the the relationship between HR and the business
1: I think that is a great observation, and I absolutely believe this is true. This is a tremendous opportunity for the HR profession to make those kinds of contributions and have a tremendous impact on the overall uh, success of the businesses where where they lead their organizations. It is a very disruptive time, it's highly transformative, But as we have seen in a number of other um, areas, when those opportunities come, the prominence and the importance of of those activities become become magnified. So there's not an organization today, in in most organizations that I'm familiar with, where technology doesn't have an extremely central role in how... The success of the business will be um, will be de- determined and and driven, and of course, personally, I believe human capital is what's going to enable the technology for having and in, in having the impact, and that's why human capital really is the most important resource in determining the success of a business as well as a country. Uh, and looking looking ahead, and the space of human capital where we are all active is where the battleground is going to be.
0: Indeed, and 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 Jonas, I- I- if I may, we've kind of looked at it from a the organisational perspective um, and the sort of the leadership perspective. Um, you know, navigating through the, these these profound transformations, um, but you've also at manpower group done some extensive research on um on if you like the employee side um with increasing numbers of people choosing to to work differently um and and on the rise of what you call the the next gen work um you know what what are some of the the highlights from your research what are you seeing um in terms of the the demand coming from the employees within organizations
1: well, we've, as, you, as you mentioned, we've done some very interesting uh, work, and some of, it, some of it has actually been counterintuitive because you know, the, what, what we're seeing is... Now, first of all, the data shows that within the last 10 to 15 years, most of the, of the uh, growth in labor markets has occurred in alternative ways of working. In almost all developed markets, that's been uh, the case. What we've also seen through our research is that what people want is changing. They know they're going to be working longer, of course, with longer longer lifespans. Uh, they know they need to have and they do desire a better balance between work and home. And not everybody wants to engage full-time for all of the time span that they intend to be in 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 the workforce. And um, you know some of the things that you're seeing as far as individuals' ability to participate and what they're looking for are very similar to what we've seen before. They want to make sure they get paid. They want to have, you know, control and feel they have control over their lives. But how that expresses itself is, is changing, which is they are accepting that they will have different kinds of careers during their lifetimes. You can think of it as a portfolio of activities. Some of it will be full-time, some of it will be part-time, some of it may be you know, independent work, some, some of it may be freelance, some of it may be temporary work, contracting. Uh, so there's going to be many, many more different opportunities to engage in the workforce. And in this debate sometimes that I read, you know, I, I get the sensation that we are thinking about it as a big pendulum swing. And I think that's a mistake. I would rather think of it As far as the labor markets and how individuals want to engage with the workforce, the way they want to engage with things in their lives, they have more choices. It doesn't mean that they abandon all their fundamental beliefs and preferences for predictability, stability, and good pay, but they add to that, well, I would also like to have a personalization, which in my case means I would like to go home at three o'clock and pick up my kids that, you know, end school then you know three days a week and then I can work remotely for the rest of the the time. Now I'm in a phase of my life where I'd like to work from home and then I would like to re-engage with an employer full-time later on. So we don't see this this idea that we're going to move to a freelance nation we don't we don't believe in at all. We believe though that what is happening is that it is becoming a much more segmented uh, organizational model as far as the individual is concerned what well, they will with their preferences choose how to interact with employers in different ways and at different times in their lives and that's what employers need to adapt to and I think that's you know that's the evolution that we're seeing in the labor markets overall over the last 10 to 15 years in particular
0: now that's really interesting and it is creating essentially as you've described a completely different contract between employer and employee um uh, and 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 all sorts of derivative versions of that contract but it strikes me the one thing that at the heart of it is um you know a need from em- employees um to have as we talked about earlier the opportunity to update their skills um and keep learning um are you are you seeing that as uh, a constant within organisations? Um, are organisations able to adapt to that and and embed that so that they're creating a? I guess as part of what what we're calling at our conference, um, you know, digital inclusion. How do we make sure that with the backdrop of? Um, you know, the digital transformation revolution that's going on that with this kind of rising tide of opportunity, people aren't left behind. Are you seeing, I guess that's a, there's, there's many questions in that, but, but if I unpack that a little bit, Jonas, um, are you seeing both from the employee side that that is a, a really important demand for them and also how are em, employers responding to that?
1: Well, uh, first of all, I would say that, you know, the evolution that we think will occur, and I think it will happen at the company level as well as at a societal level, is that the notion of job security will fade away and the notion of employment security will be the new deal, if you'd like, between individuals and organizations that work with them. And that is exactly tied into your point around you know, the contract is I will acquire skills that make me marketable and I can move forward regardless of what happens. And society will provide the ability for faster change, but pro- with a uh, support network that makes sure that as you go through these changes, you have financial ability to do so without, you know, falling on hard times. So that's the evolution that we see, generally speaking. As it relates to what companies are doing, I think what's really important in this area is not to only think about it as a programmatic initiative. Many companies today have learning platforms. Many ways of accessing digital content are being provided to employees in most organizations of scale in many organizations of smaller scale that are being able to leverage technology and digital tools to provide platforms that would make it all possible. But just as what we see with diversity and inclusion, unless it moves from being a programmatic approach to a cultural mindset within the organization that this is the expectation of you as an individual in this organization from the top down to acquire new skills and to seek out new opportunities, and that that is part of our specific and explicit engagement with you as an individual, it will not be sufficient to prepare organizations to face the skills revolutions that they will have to, you know, cover within their own organizations. Uh, Because what we see as far as the impact of technology is concerned, we believe based on today's technology, five to 10 to 15% on average of jobs might get entirely eliminated and disrupted and new jobs will be created to make up for that. But 60 to 70 percent of all jobs will have a very significant impact on technology, where people need to acquire new skills to take advantage of and be able to augment that technology. Failing to do so means that the organization will realize that this individual is no longer suitable to stay here. Since the impact is so systemic at such a scale, If you don't address this as an organization, you'll find yourself in a conversation with your CEO that goes something like this. Well, out of our 100, uh, out of our workforce of 100, we think 30% of the people are able to do the new kind of work we need them to do, leveraging technology and all of our strategies will benefit from that. We're not sure about 20 and 50% don't have the requisite skills and we need to change them out. Or we need to do something radical and of course as as many of the organizations are aware doing anything with 50% of the workforce is extremely difficult and unlikely to succeed so to prepare for what we know is coming it has to be strategic and it has to be cultural it has to be part of the culture to acquire and have a learnability culture so that you can prevent this cliff Uh, moment as an organization but rather keep on working on it and keep on improving as part of it. And I think that's going to be the biggest difference between organizations that implement this successfully and those that do it in a programmatic way where it is based on an instant need but in the end it's not going to be sufficient and deep enough to be able to make a difference.
0: I I have to say I really like the way you've described that um, in terms of the you know the the fundamental culture change that that organisations need to go through, so that um, th- this is embedded as as every, in every part of what they do. Um, I actually just wanted to ask you a question in relation to um, it's a specific thing in uh, one of the one of the things that I'm working on is um, uh, education to employment, something I, I'm particularly interested in, uh, and and I know you are, and there is a um lot of research mckinsey's done a, a couple of extensive education to employment pieces of research you know saying that the basic dynamic here is that um employers can't find the right skills um but but young people parents teachers actually don't necessarily know what those skills look like those if you like um transferable skills and and the world economic forum has i know done some work into these employability skills um uh, and i was you know looking at that recently and they had for 2015 10 identified core um skills and then the, a survey of lots of chros updated that for 2020 with you know some of the, some of the same but some different ones and um and as a framework so for example emotional intelligence emerged in the 2020 which wasn't in the 2015 um, and, and my question here is um, how how important do you think it is for employers and leaders to be able to define what those, if you like, transferable skills that become the currency for this world of work that we're moving into? How important is it that employers actually are able to hold up to young people and the education system? this is the missing stuff, this is what we're really interested in, this is how it's applied. Does that make sense? I think, I think the ability to identify
1: uh, core skill sets that will always be important, and also an in-depth understanding of what adjacent skills adjacencies can lead to different employment opportunities, that fundamental understanding will be extremely difficult, I mean, extremely important for organizations to be, illus- to be able to illustrate you know, to all of their stakeholders. And I say that for a number of reasons. First of all, employers are very poor at predicting their future workforce demands, generally speaking. Further out than 12 months, both in terms of uh, quantity, and sometimes in terms of skill sets, they can be wildly wrong. Why? Because their business environment changes. Of course they have retirements, of course you have certain sectors like healthcare with an aging population where you're able to, you know, easier predict what is going to be needed in terms of numbers, although I would argue that the skill sets that are going to be needed are going to be very different also within the healthcare sector looking ahead based on technological evolution. But the ability of employers to understand skills adjacencies and to be able to depict career paths for individuals uh, is going to be a core core organizational capability. Because the other aspect, and that's where we think the skills revolution will have a big impact, we don't believe this idea of 9 years or 12 years or 15 years of continuous education without more frequent interaction with the labor markets or the workforce in itself is a viable model going forward. We think that there will be a base element of education but that then is supplemented with a much more shorter term, quicker way to uh, earn earn to employment cycles than we have today because the world is moving so quickly. And that means employers' understanding of taking a skill set and understanding what skills adjacencies can exist so that these employees or these individuals have the opportunity to find new opportunities is going to be extremely important, both for their own talent strategies, but of course also from their from their ability to express this to policymakers and educational institutions, so that they can actually articulate it in a way that makes them do something. Because if you think about it today, an employer says, "You know, it's really difficult to find um, a certain skill, a certain vocational skill set," and you know due to demographics or to the economic cycle or a construction boom or something else and of course an educational institution has been working on an individual you know for the for the first nine years and then they have another three years to go and they have a a course a whole a whole setup which can not change uh... that quickly and you know that is where that interrelationship and that ability to be able to express it is going to be a core capability and we've seen this in our own work we've taken And we've actually been ourselves surprised at the, if you have a clear understanding of a core skill set, an understanding of a future skill set, and how you can bridge through skills adjacencies with very focused interventions, in a relatively short period of time, you can take somebody who is unqualified for, say, advanced manufacturing technology and make them into an advanced manufacturing operator in three to four months and improve their earnings capability by 50 to 100%. But it does take a very clear assessment both on hard skills and soft skills and a very clear understanding of what the steps are to add the specific skill sets that can make them fully employable and off to a new career track uh, into the future. Questions that I was curious about since i have you on the line of course. how do you think the apprenticeship initiative is working out in the uk um
0: i think that the honest answer is it's structurally a really really important thing um so i'm very pro it um however yeah. it was introduced on the back of a fag packet as they say so it it it, ah. it wasn't thought through there wasn't a sort of a a proper engagement with employers so um, I think the fact that it, it there is a, a levy on, um, large employers payroll, um, has got everybody's attention. I think the, uh, where it currently is 70% of large employers are saying that they're going to disregard the levy because it's too complicated to implement. However, I think what's going to happen is that over the next couple of years, um, there will be quite a lot of amendments to how the apprenticeship levy can be applied, particularly if it can be applied more flexibly. And it has a very important structural role to play in um, non-higher education um, routes and pathways into employment, so technical and vocational qualifications. What I was going to say, I'd be kind of really interested in your perspectives on, um, I mean, one of the things about the apprenticeship agenda in the UK is, it doesn't have the social capital um, that, for example, apprenticeships have in somewhere like Germany, where there's almost parity between higher education routes and apprenticeships. Um, I mean, you're a kind of global citizen, a global businessman. What, What are your perspectives on what you've heard of the apprenticeship agenda, well, in the UK, but also what does good look like in other parts of the world?
1: Well, I I, I think it's very similar to your last observation. You know, my observation is that the reason apprenticeships work so well in a number of countries and the reason it appears not to work so well in other countries, you know, aside from the mechanics, and and that's why I was curious, you know, the apprentice, uh, the the, Apprenticeship levy and all of that. I've read in the UK that the implementation is very complex, so people, you know, they can't be, just like you say, they can't be bothered applying for it and, you know, all of that. So they're just going to go ahead and do it. So they essentially view it as a tax, um, which is a shame. But that is, and you've seen that the French have just wholesale just now thrown out their whole apprenticeship program and said, look, this is nonsense, it has to be redone from the ground up because they spend a very large amount of money with um, excessively poor outcomes. Um, I think my end conclusion comes to the point that you raised just at the end there, which is the social capital, the culture of the labor market may be more important than the mechanism. When somebody takes a, becomes a master plumber in Germany, his, his or her family takes out an ad in the newspaper and says my daughter has successfully completed her her four-year apprenticeship. Um, we are so proud of her. She has now she is now a certified uh, plumber, uh, master plumber. And um, you know, if you get a university degree in Germany, nobody does that. So the, the the recognition of this as a career choice of quality and of prestige and and dignity. Is so deeply ingrained in those countries, and of course, we're talking about 400 years of culture here—not, you know, some some government initiative. We're talking about a deep-rooted respect, you know, uh, and in some ways egalitarianism in that r- regard. When it comes to, you know, people doing w- work in different avenues, where you almost, you know, you regardless of what level you are, as in what income level you are, the fact that you're an expert at something, you're a really good at something gets recognition whether it's vocational or you know from from a university perspective. And what I've observed is that the countries that have that have very successful apprenticeship programs and have it as a fantastic way of channeling young people into employment opportunities or reskilling older workers and doing things like that because it's so ingrained and despite the best efforts even with a lot of money thrown at it like in France or not enough money like in lots of other countries you know, the other, getting it scalable is very difficult. And I've noticed, you know, it's, it's be, been more successful in some areas. Take, for instance, in the United States, where you have that recognition of the expertise. Say, for instance, in the construction trade. You know, there, there is an established apprenticeship system where you acquire the skills and you get into the construction uh, business and you know you become more and more skilled and you know it's heavily promoted by the unions as well and there is a pathway and there is a recognition and you know they wear their badges with pride and in the vests and all of that there the apprenticeship system seems to work extremely well take though manufacturing in the US that's not the case because you don't have that just this week there was an article in Wall Street Journal about a girl in high school very successful top of her class high school girl that wants to become a diesel mechanic and the whole article was what what on earth made this girl choose to go the diesel mechanic route as opposed to applying to the college which is you know more than more than qualified for um and it's kind of an interesting illustration of where a mindset is here in the u.s so
0: jonas uh, thank you ever so much i have to say I, I could pursue and pursue questions on on that line alone but um you've been really generous with with your time i i thoroughly enjoyed our conversation um thanks very much
1: thanks so much jim
0: thanks for listening you can find many more future talent podcasts available to download on itunes stitcher soundcloud or wherever you get your podcasts you can check out our other stories on the website www.changeboard.com we look forward to bringing you another future talent podcast very soon